in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. I thought I might make it down to the end of uh, the chapter, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to read to verse 14 from verse 7. Let's read at verse 7, Revelation 11, 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, uh, um, some of the, the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to be let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest of the, uh, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Well, uh, we uh, are going to begin in the week after next. I was hoping next week, but week after next we are uh, going to be looking at Advent, looking at some Christmas messages, uh, but that will begin with chapter 12 of Revelation. Uh, Revelation isn't typically where we go to begin sermons on Christmas, but it so happens that Revelation 12 is uh, indeed, a perfect place because it, it is a look at Revelation, but it also takes us back to the birth of Jesus, the woman and the dragon. And so we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. And uh, next week we're going to look at the passages, verses 15 to the end of, that, of this chapter. Last week we looked from, verses, uh, from chapter 10 into 11, verse 6 at the spread of the gospel around the world. We saw how this mystery of the kingdom was now ready to be unleashed on the world, and that was the message of the gospel, the gospel mystery, that the promises made to Abraham are now being fulfilled in Jesus. And that began with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, so that even Peter himself, who had denied Jesus not long before, was now boldly preaching to thousands of people. And that is uh, seen here in this image of the, the two witnesses. The, the, uh, the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which symbolize the church. And individuals within that church. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out. And now, the, 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 out of 
seemingly out of nowhere, out of a period of, of absolute despair, after Jesus had been crucified, laid in the tomb, seemed all hope was gone, now that same Jesus has been risen, the Spirit of God has come down upon the church, and the Gospel is being spread around the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy that it would not be by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. The Spirit flowing through His vessels, the witnesses. And so the church of God taking that Gospel message out into the world. And through that powerful presentation, uh, really turning the world on its head. Uh, within several generations, uh, the Gospel had spread over the whole of the known world. And it was really turning the world on its, on its head. And so we see the Gospel triumph in, in great measure in those passages that we looked at last week. Well, this week, we want to see how that process ebbs and flows. And it's seen in this, this drastic turn of events where the, uh, the witnesses are killed and their bodies are desecrated by being left in the street. And it seems like the gospel and the spread of the gospel has now come to a halt and is eclipsed by the workings of the power of darkness. Now remember what we've been saying throughout this presentation. It is that the, uh, the, the uh, book of Revelation presents pictures of the kingdom growth between Jesus' first and second coming. And that there are things, there are blessings, and there are judgments, and there are setbacks that are all proceeding, not chronologically one after another, but at the same time. And that was true even in the death of Jesus. There were, there were uh, uh, good things and evil things proceeding at the very same time. And that's what we see in this picture. We're not to see simply a time of blessing followed by a time of darkness, followed by another explosive time of blessing. We're to see a mixture... And sometimes it does kind of work out to say, okay, here God is working in an extraordinary way, and now we see it completely gone away, and it just seems to be coming back again. And it just seems to look that way. But what we're really seeing is a time of blessing in some places and regression in others. We may look at our world today and look at PEI and say, well, where is the gospel going forth in great power? Well, we might not see it on PEI, but we might see it in China, or Nepal, or we may see it in Iran, uh, or we may see it in other parts of the world where there's extraordinary, explosive growth. Uh, and the same is true when it comes to a passage like we're looking at here this morning. That, that, that the church at other times can be under severe attack in some places and yet growing and being blessed in other places. So that's why I don't want us to be thinking of this simply in terms of chronology, that this is exactly what takes place in this span of time and then that 
absolutely stops and then something else takes place. But you're seeing an overlapping. But John is describing it in a way that we can understand. He's describing it in a vision, as a story that reflects something real. As we've been saying, as often is the case in literature, with, uh, with uh, uh, stories like uh, Pilgrim's Progress, or the Chronicles of Narnia, or the Lord of the Rings, and many of these pieces of literature, they're trying to describe real things in picture form. And so it says in verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, um, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So what John is describing in these two chapters is the progress and regress of the Gospel when their witness is completed. In other words, we see this, the language of intention. We see the language of God's sovereignty. He says, when this, this, there's a time for this and there's a time for this. There's a place for this and a place for that. And so here they have been equipped by God. It's not that they're falling victim to these powers completely. Because we we saw in the previous verse, verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. We saw that, that was, those were pictures of what happened in the ministry of Elijah who prayed that no rain be given for a period of time. And that through Moses, plagues would come upon Egypt. So really, they were unstoppable when God so allowed. Isn't that right? No one could stop them. They could stop rain from falling, and they could bring these plagues upon the earth. And that's simply saying that when God chooses to move in the world by His Spirit through people like you and I, there's no stopping us. That kingdoms are shaken. That things happen. You, you have that in times of blessing down through the years with revival. Where the church looked dead. And preachers like John Wesley and Charles Wesley and, his, and George Whitfield and people like that. And even in our own pulpit right here at Donald McDonald many years ago. That God raised up and Whereas the, the, the taverns were full and the churches were empty, within months that simply reversed itself. And you have this extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God. Now, he's not saying that these preachers had the power to call down fire from heaven. It was true with Elijah and Moses and people like that who, who lived in extraordinary times. But he is picturing the powerful preaching of the Gospel. And Gospel as it moved around the world at various times in history. There were great surges, in other words. It was unstoppable. The, you can find that even in the early church where the, there's Pontius Pilate and Herod and they're wringing their hands, aren't they? What are we going to do? 
they're going around doing miracles and they're preaching boldly and the people are listening to them. What's going to become of us? And they tried to stamp it out. They'd throw them in prison, but an angel would come in and open the doors and they'd go out and they'd be down in Queen and Grafton preaching again. And so they were, they, they were terrified. They were perplexed as to what they were going to do with the Christian movement. That's the idea that John is picturing here. The uh, unleashing of God's Spirit through his people to do extraordinary things. And so Jesus says, greater things than these will you do because I go on to the Father. But now he's also picturing for us a time in the life of the church where there is great regression. Where under, again, the sovereignty of God, the beast is let loose. The Antichrist, the devil himself, is allowed to make war. That's why we're seeing it as more than just two people. You don't use the language of we'll make war or we'll attack. Just two individuals. We're seeing here make war on the witnesses. The beast rises from the bottomless pit and will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That's why, again, you, you see that, uh, th that they fall in that great city called, symbolically called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord is crucified. Again, we're looking at something not in terms of two historical individuals, but we're looking at representatives of the church. And so the devil is allowed for a time to wreak great havoc. We saw that with Job, didn't we? Where Job comes to God and he says, look at, look at Job. He's only obeying you because you're blessing him. And so God allows the devil to do certain things against Job, but he also puts a border on it. He also says, this far, no further. That was true in the life of our Lord Jesus. You have the same pattern. Progress. Three years of Jesus' ministry. Miracles. Preaching. They're going out and the demons are subject to the disciples in their preaching and in their testimony. It just seemed like everything was just shooting up like a shooting star. There's no stopping us. They get pretty cocky and, and they start to say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, how about me on your right hand and this person on your left? Oh, they, they're, they're starting to sort things out. Right? Things are going so well until all of a sudden, within hours, the whole thing hits a wall and it, everything goes dark. Everything goes black. Nothing is recognizable anymore. Nothing makes sense anymore. All hope is lost. And Jesus himself says, this is the hour of the power of darkness. This is when the devil is at his fiercest, he says. He's not, he's not uh, uh, at rest. He is full on working through Judas Iscariot, working through Peter even, working through the, the religious leaders, working through the highest up in government. In other words, at every possible realm of society, 
The devil is at work to destroy the Word made flesh. And then that becomes the template, you see? That becomes the model for church history as a whole in what John is seeing here. A time of progress, a time of seemingly unrestrained power from heaven where people are being healed, where souls are being saved and converted, where the king is among them, everything is falling, they're doing battle against the gates of hell itself. What could go wrong? How could they stop it? It just seemed unstoppable. And yet, in the purposes of God that even the disciples didn't understand, God was doing something far more profound, more wonderful and awesome as the clouds came over and as the Son of God who had healed with His hands, who had preached the Gospel, who had saved souls, was now like a slaughtered lamb, torn to pieces on a cross. Nobody could figure out why. Why is this happening? It doesn't make sense. The devil is on his hind legs. He is, he is, he is uh, uh, more aggressive than he ever was before. The church then finds itself now in that same position in this passage that we are looking at. So that he allows this beast to be not having his complete way, but having certain power and authority over the church and against the church to attack it, to destroy it. And yet, just with the cross, God is in the midst of all of that, getting glory for His name, pulling victory out of defeat, and coming forth with greater power, with greater glory than ever before. So we see the, the pattern going in cycles, don't we? We see what happened in the ministry and life of Jesus now is being uh, uh, gone through again in the history of the church. That through times of incredible blessing and incredible defeat, God is working out His purposes and we're in the middle of it. We need to remind ourselves of that. That this is not something off in the distant future. It's now. This is what he's describing as happening now. And so the devil attacks. And how does he attack? He attacks in various ways. But one of the big ways we have saw, saw in previous weeks is his attack on the church. Now we know that... Uh, if you're living in North Korea or China or Iran or many of these countries, it is physical as well as spiritual. The attack is all over, but we've seen that the, one of the chief ways in which the devil attacks is through false doctrine. And if you've been on our Tuesday night Bible study, you'll remember that John warns of this in particular ways. False prophets have gone out into the world, just like coming up from the, from the shaft of the abyss here. Many prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets, deceiving. 
So in other words, the devil can attack while people are sitting in church. Sitting in church is where maybe there's no gospel. He's quite happy for people to go to church as long as they don't hear the gospel. Because it's the gospel that saves a man's soul. And so that's what he's particularly concerned about, right? Doesn't that make sense? He's not so much concerned about money and, and, and the material things. Oh, he'll use that to pull people away. But the end game is the soul of the person. So what is his chief goal? Is to deceive. And that is the battle in churches around the world today. To give them another gospel. If you're good, God will save you. If you're bad, you go to hell. That's the way mankind approaches salvation. And people then gravitate toward a system of salvation by works and not by God's grace. The Bible says that it's God's grace that we are saved. By His grace we are saved. Not of works, lest any man boast. You see, and that is the spirit that gripped the church for hundreds of years. We think of the Dark Ages, for example. There was a time of rapid spread, right up until the time of Constantine, where Constantine recognized the Christian faith. Then after that, the, the, the church became ossified and institutionalized and politicized and materialized. And all the rest of the eyes along with it. But they weren't gospelized. They weren't preaching the gospel, and so the gospel goes into a period of eclipse for hundreds of years. Totally? No. There were still people who, in pockets here and there who are holding fast to the gospel, but by and large, the church had buried the gospel under ritual and tradition and politics and all the rest of it. And there is a, and it's pictured here in these witnesses being killed and their bodies lying in the streets of the great city, symbolically called Sodom, Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. In other words, he's he's not getting at one particular person, place rather. He's he he might be referring to Rome, but the fact that he's using all these different cities gives it a more universal flavor. In other words, the attack can come not only in Rome or in Jerusalem, but in London or Tokyo or Pyongyang or some other city of the world. Those cities are simply representing the world system that is against the principles of God. And so it is here. These witnesses are attacked and their bodies lie in the street of the great city. Sodom was uh, 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 seen for its, um, for its wickedness, for its uh, immorality. Egypt, because they persecuted God's people. And Jerusalem was the place where Jesus was crucified. So all these cities represent the evil of the world systems through which now the beast is warring and making war on the church against the prophets of God. 
And it seems like, according to this, they're overcoming. That for long periods of time and in wide swaths of the earth, the devil is having his way. And the gospel is non-existent. The gospel is buried in all of these times and places. And so you have uh, this uh, image that comes through uh, Augustine, for example, who talks about the city of man over against the city of God. And here are these cities. Sodom. And Egypt, though it's not a, it's a city, it's a nation. But you have other cities like Jerusalem or Rome. These cities are the cities of man. Through whom now the beast is war, making war against Christians on an individual basis. And they refuse burial. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city. We know ourselves the indignity of what it would be for one of our loved ones not to have a proper burial. To see the body of our loved one thrown out in the field or on the side of the road or something to be left there. We as a society would re, we'd, we'd see that with a sense of revulsion. And what John is saying here is that the demonic attack against the church will be such as to heap the maximum amount of disgrace and dishonor upon God's church. That's what the devil's desire was. That's why Jesus was crucified. Because crucifixion maximized human degradation. It was the destruction of the person. Not only physically, but socially and in every other way. Crucifixion maximized the disgrace. And this is what the desire of the world system is to do to maximize the disgrace against the witnesses, against the church down through the ages because of the convicting nature of the message. Look at verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's like evil Christmas. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Remember how we said earlier on that Moses and Elijah were, were, were kind of like those witnesses? They kind of typified those witnesses? Well, so too here. Moses and Elijah spoke of things that, they, that their people did not want to hear. Ahab said of Elijah, you are a troubler of Israel. We don't like your message around here. And Elijah said, I am not the troubler of Israel, but you are. John the Baptist would preach against Herod. He had his brother's wife. And every time John the Baptist preached, he said, it's not right for you to be in that relationship. And it came to a point where both Herod and his wife wanted to destroy uh, uh, Herod uh, to destroy John the Baptist. And when the opportunity presented itself, John the Baptist was beheaded. 
because people don't want to hear that. They're, they're torn. You, you know what, like yourself, at, at some level, if somebody's saying something to you that you don't want to hear and you get your back up, you become angry. And this is what the, the world system is feeling about the gospel, which is always telling them, you're not good enough for God. Your sins are an offense to God. Your immorality is a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. And the world tries to close its eyes or throw a parade or do whatever. Change the laws. Get rid of Bibles in schools, as has happened here on Prince Edward Island over the last number of years. Anything to drown out the gospel. Anything to get rid of that convicting voice. So that any dissent today, any dissent, if you associate with anyone who dissents, you're an enemy of the state. We're seeing that unfold in our world. So that the message that these two prophets were speaking was a torment to the world system, a torment to the people. Maybe it was like that for you. Do you remember a time in your life, perhaps, before you got saved, before you were converted, that the gospel was a torment to you? Ah, go. Go tell it to someone else. I don't want to hear that. That nonsense, that foolishness. I'm not a sinner. I'm not that bad. I'm not, I, I believe that when I die, I will be in heaven. And well, what are you, what are you talking about? You get, your ang- you get angry and you get your back up. Maybe you're like that today. Maybe some of you are here today feeling that very thing. You feel uh, that the message of the gospel is objectionable. And you just wish it would stop. Or you wish somebody else would come come to your church and tell you something different, that everything is going to be okay if you just look to yourself. Believe in yourself. Trust in your own heart. You see? That's what Paul called itching ears in the latter days. People will have itching ears and they will bring in teachers that will agree with what their heart's telling them already. But the gospel is an offense to us because it says to us, in no uncertain terms, you can't do it. And that is objectionable to who and what we are. And it can come to a point with some, we need to silence this. And in our world today, friends, mark my words, in our country there is an attempt to silence the gospel and silence Christian people because there is another movement that says it's feelings that are preeminent. And if my feelings are telling me this, then that is what is right and true. And then to have this ancient book come and tell me something else that's objectionable and we've got to outlaw these people we've got to silence them everything we can but that's out there what about here what about you have you found the gospel objectionable yourself is is it a torment to you you might say well he's starting to torment me right now uh, but uh, you 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 may have found that objectionable and we can, you can see it. You might ask yourself, well, how do I know if I am or not? By every week walking back out that door and doing nothing with it. 
you see no place in your life for the gospel. You don't have to punch me in the gut going out the door to reject it. You can simply say, not for me, not for me. Might be for him, but for them, but not for me. But this is what the world system does to these prophets. And so the, 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 the church, as it were, goes through this time of progress and regress. It goes through times of the dark ages, but it comes in the, into the time of the Reformation. Where you have this unlikely monk who nails 99 theses, 95 theses to the door. I added a few. 95 theses to the door. And then God moves in power across Western Europe. And the Gospel is rediscovered again. You go through a time of the, the enlightenment where, where religion again starts to die off and then God revives things. Seeing things seem dark and hopeless. God moves again through the Great Awakening and the, and the massive revivals that spread throughout Great Britain. And so we have these times. And we're part of that. You may say, well, what time are we living in? Well, like I said at the beginning, it depends on where you're living. But regardless, our calling is that of the witnesses. We are the witnesses. The people of God are the witnesses. And whatever it costs us, we are to hold fast. It costs these witnesses their lives, you see. It costs them shame and degradation and all the rest of it. But they were willing to stand and say, here is where we stand. God help us, we can do no other. As in the famous words of Luther. And so, when we look at ourselves, we say, regardless of the cost, and it may not cost me my life, it may not cost me what it's costing some, but it may cost me something. And am I willing to stand for that in those times. But then it says, verse 11, but after three and a half days, again, this is a time of a period of testing, the breath of life came from God and entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. This is what I was saying earlier about the, the progress, regress, and the progress again. And he pictures it in the terms of a coming back to life. And the language, we, as we read from Ezekiel 37, is similar here. After three and a half days, the breath of life. Now, if you're a, uh, someone reading the book of Revelation, you hear that, you think, hey, that sounds like Ezekiel's prophecy. When Ezekiel prophesied to the bones that were hopeless, right? when, we're thinking of play, when we're thinking of a situation of death, you can't get more dead than that, can you? A valley full of dry bones, like one of these old westerns wind is blowing, the tumbleweed is blowing across the, 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 the west and, the, and there's cactus there and there's some cow's skull that's kind of lying there and, and uh, there's all these bones scattered all over the place. You see, it can't get more dead than that. And that's the valley of the dry bones and the language here is reminiscent of that. A breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. So that after a picture of long captivity in Babylon, when things seemed hopeless, 
God raises his, his people on their feet again. He makes them a nation. And the people say, what has the Lord wrought? Who would have guessed that these people would be back? And that the temple would be built. And the walls would be built. And they would be a people again. And that's why John is using this language reminiscent of Ezekiel because he's saying the church may look down and out at certain points. It may look like that now. It may look like that on PEI. But God never leaves His church that way. And what do we do in the meantime? Do we sit around and wait for revival? Say, well, I guess I can't do anything. Kesarasara. Hold the fort. You know, keep, keep your head down. No. We work like the witnesses worked. We sacrifice. We bear witness. And what we're doing here, what we do Sunday morning and Sunday evening is a witness. That's the point of this chapter. What do the witnesses do? What happens to the witnesses? How does God vindicate the witnesses? We are the witnesses. And so we take that good news and we say, this is worth living for and dying for. And so the church here is resurrected. So often in the life of, of the, the church, things did look completely gone. During the communist revolution in China in the late 40s and early 50s, church seemed almost gone altogether. Now there's upwards of perhaps over 100 million Christians in China. And it's spreading in other countries like I outlined before, Nepal and, and many of these other places in the world. Voltaire, the French philosopher, said that by the end of the 1800s, the Christian religion will be dead. Within a generation, it will be gone. And the Geneva Bible Society built their Bible Society and housed it in the house of a dead Voltaire. We see the irony of that. We see the, the beauty of that. And so there you have people like Voltaire who is celebrating like these, making merry and exchanging presents. This is all the sense of rejoicing. Just like, the, just like the enemies of Jesus did. The Romans and the Jews. Ah, he's dead. This is the third day he's been in, in the grave. It's, he's as dead as dead and this movement is going to fall apart. And his disciples, they're gone. They're nowhere to be seen. We've won. Break out the presents. Break out the champagne. We don't have to listen to that, that gospel anymore. That, and be convicted of that anymore. It just got that low. That God is able to give resurrection to His church just as He did with Jesus. You see the parallels between Jesus and His church? We are the body of Christ. And through that, we, over time, experience what Jesus went through. Not personally that Jesus went through on the cross. But we see the patterns repeat themselves. So that in the darkness even, when we think all that we can do is hunker down and keep our mouths shut, we still say, God is at work and I will be in church. 
I will be faithful in my family. I will be on my knees. I will be praying to God. I will be sharing the gospel with the people that need to hear it. I will be supporting foreign missions. I will be praying for uh, the, the people in our prayer notes. I will be doing what I can even when all is dark. Even when nothing seems to be moving. Who has despised the day of small things? Says the prophet. Who among you has despised the day of small things? You know what we do? We despise it by saying, I'm just going to wait around for God to revive me. And until then, that's it. No. We work. We put ourselves in God's face. We go to church. We're in the Word. We're doing these things. We're calling out to Him at all times. We're not waiting, but we're seeking Him. We're going out to where He is. Rather than simply saying, I can only wait till God comes to me. No, we, we pursue God because He's worth pursuing. And never is God more glorified than in those down times, in those dark times, when He sees His church pursuing Him. Because they know and understand what He's done. They know and understand that He is worth it. And so we are there. We find ourselves there. And though the church may find itself down and discouraged. We may look at our own estate in disabled or the state of the church on PEI. We still say, God has not left us. He will never leave us. And He has given us a vision here of what we're living through. And He has given us a vision of what will come out on the other side. Nothing short of resurrection. That's why Paul says... I want to know Him. The power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. How can we know the power of His resurrection if we don't enter into the fellowship of His sufferings? But this is what He's promising the witnesses here. This is what He gives the witnesses. Life from the dead. Vindicating them. Saying they were right to hold the fort. They were right to do what they did. And He vindicates them now before the nations who now tremble and fear what God is doing. As Paul says of the, Ro of, of the Jews and Romans, if they're casting away be life for us Gentiles, what will be their inclusion but life from the dead? Friends, we have that calling as God's people. Don't think it's in some place far, far away in a land that's uh, distant in a time that's yet to come. But he is giving a commentary on 2020. He's saying there's times of progression, times of regression. And ours is not to try to figure out what time am I in so I can figure out what I'm to do. Our time is to do what we've always done from the beginning, and hold fast to the Gospel. Proclaim it, whatever the cost. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. And, if you have not believed, if you have not believed today, so far in your life, I say that this is what God is showing what will happen. When we believe and when we don't believe what camps we will fall into, what we are bringing upon ourselves. 
because we have been warned, have we not? The trumpet blasts have gone out week after week after week, year after year in your life. And are you hearing those trumpet blasts? Are you hearing the invitation of the Gospel to come, be cleansed, be washed, be saved by Jesus and be brought into His kingdom because His is an everlasting kingdom which will not be defeated. Let's pray.